Well, it's good to be back with you this afternoon, and uh, so thankful for the fellowship with you all here at the Indianapolis Free Church. I think of the words of Jesus Christ that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. But we have to have bread, don't we? We have to have the daily nourishment, and uh, I'm thankful for the time of uh, fellowship and food today, and bread was one of those staples, and uh, so uh, thank you. I, I, uh, I won't go to sleep, I promise you, after a good meal like that. That's sometimes a thing in the afternoon. I promise to stay awake, so you all have to do the same, okay, along with me. Uh, this has been a wonderful time. I, I'm so glad to be back with you all. I've worshipped here a, a number of times and uh, was just humbled that uh, Pastor Bannister asked me to fill the pulpit. So uh, um, I guess it's possible you may see my face again sometime, and I certainly would love to see your all's faces again if I'm passing through. Uh, just a little bit more of the biography, just to kind of know who I am. I ministered in a Bible Presbyterian church for... From 2003 to 2017, so uh, about 15, 16 years, and I'm still a minister in the Bible Presbyterian Church. Uh, God willing, here, as soon as I get all my onboarding and shots and things done, I'm going to be a, it's a new position for a retirement home, a Christian retirement home in downtown Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, so I'll be the chaplain for that Christian home. It's a part of the Reformed Presbyterian Church. And uh, so it's a position they created, they got a grant for, I guess when they interviewed, I met the qualifications best of what they were looking for. So that's kind of uh, in progress. I also fill pulpits on occasion, usually at least twice a month, uh, others as the Lord allows. So it's a privilege because uh, that's what I was trained to do, to be a minister of the word. So it's always a privilege to be able to proclaim God's word. And I mentioned this morning that this is technically a two-part sermon. We're going to finish up the last two verses of the passage that we were looking at in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. But because of the nature of the afternoon service, a bit more devotional, I'm going to add some history and church history. And uh, I enjoy that. I hope you all do too. And I certainly, before this sermon's done, if you don't appreciate history, I hope quickly you'll start appreciating history. That'll be something exciting to you. And it's not uh, tons and tons of history, but uh, some very important things that I think you'll appreciate and enjoy. So again, thank you for this privilege and the listening and the receiving of the Word of God. I'd like for us then to turn again to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And I'm going to read our text again. Our focus this afternoon, Lord willing, will be verses 17 and 18. But I'd like to read just the brief section that I read this morning, beginning in verse 14. 2 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse 14. But their minds were blinded, for until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, 
are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. May God bless this reading of his word. My sermon this morning was free indeed. And this afternoon we're going to continue that same theme, free indeed. And in doing so, we're going to add some American history and church history that I think will be beneficial in understanding not just our text, which is most important, but some of our the important lessons of our Christian heritage. And uh, I just trust that uh, the Lord will use it to be a blessing and help to you. I was sharing different things at lunch about my background, getting to know each other and you know, I do feel very at home here, even though I've only been here four or five times. Uh, it's amazing the way that Christian brothers and sisters can feel like they've known each other a long time. And uh, I have that, that same sense. But I'm so thankful for the privilege of, of being here and uh, enjoying this time together. And I, uh, being a Hoosier, uh, I'm going to share a couple of insights that I gained from growing up uh, in this area and uh, kind of the lessons uh, historically and by way of application for us. So I trust, uh, again, it will be a, a blessing and help to you. Would we conclude the portion of our text from verses 17 and 18 here today? We're going to look at two different truths. And uh, before that, we're going to examine some things about church history and American church history, American history, that I think will be helpful. Um, But what we will see in just a few moments will be these points. In verse 17, we're going to look at the subject of regeneration by the Spirit. And then secondly, sanctification by the Spirit. A number of years ago, I had a man from Northern Ireland come to preach for, actually for me, for a conference I was having, a retreat for young people. And his series was called God's Really Big Words Made Simple. And two of those words were our words here, regeneration and sanctification. It was very helpful, very good. I still remember it quite well and the impact it had upon our young people. So we're certainly going to try to make sure we understand those big theological, biblical words, regeneration and sanctification. But before doing so, as we talked about the subject of being free, And this morning in particular about the bondage that is ours as sinners. We are born in chains. We are slaves. I was once told, I remember as a child, you're a slave to something or someone. And of course, as unbelievers, we are slaves to our sin. But thankfully, we as ones who are saved by grace are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, bond slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is not really bondage at all from our hearts. We're glad to be the servants of our king. And so I wanted to talk about our country a little bit. We sang the psalm, which is good to do. I was not exposed to psalm singing until, uh, I'm trying to think what year of life, somewhere around 30 before I began to sing the psalm. So uh, about 25 years, and it's a blessing to do so. And uh, that's one reason I chose the psalm. And the context there with my sermon. But then we sang a song that many of you know, My Country Tis of Thee. And growing up in East Central Indiana, I 
was thinking about the little school out in the country I attended for elementary school, Westwood Elementary School. And a great place to go to school for a public school. One of my friends, uh, when I was on Facebook back in the day, I got reconnected with, but uh, still been a while. But I remember some of my teachers uh, during that time. And it was funny, even though I kind of share my age, I'm 55. It seems like yesterday. And uh, I have a picture that uh, is in my study, which is not really a study anymore. It's just kind of a collect-all place in the basement of our home is a picture of me with my my kindergarten teacher now she was then miss hodge and about two or three years later she left to get married so i didn't know what her married name ever was but miss hodge was my kindergarten teacher and it's out in the woods actually we had a woods on our elementary school property and i'm sitting on a pony that uh, is owned by one of the descendants of sergeant york have you heard that name sergeant york he was the most decorated World War I uh, soldier, and he was a Christian. He grew up about 20 miles south of where my family grew up in northern Tennessee. Actually, there was a movie made about Sergeant York. I could commend it to you, but he was a believer. He knew the Lord Jesus Christ, and Sergeant York, this is kind of off the subject. I'm getting historical already, but Sergeant York did not want to fight. He was a conscientious objector because of his Christian faith, and uh, he went into the hills of Tennessee, where he lived, and read the scripture and prayed for several days, and he said, you know, I, I'm going to go fight for my country. And so he went to Germany and uh, became the most decorated soldier in World War I. So God used him in a, a mighty way. One of his cousins came to the funeral for my mother, so there's kind of a connection. And some of my family knew him, so it was a, it's, it's a, a neat connection. Anyhow, one of his descendants uh, they had a farm and they had a pony. And so there's a picture of me in the woods at Westwood School next to Miss Hodge. And I'm wearing a sweatshirt that was given to me by my aunt and uncle who had just gotten married in 1971. He was first married. He was 40 years old, my uncle. And the first Christmas is in 71. I was almost five. I can remember it. And I'm wearing that picture. So what about Westwood School? Well, second grade. I remember we used to do something called the Pledge of Allegiance to the Flag. Maybe you all have heard of that. We would stand and we would cross our heart. And oftentimes we would sing, My Country, Tis of Thee. I guess you could do it back in that day, couldn't you? You know, things I was telling our friends there at lunchtime, how we're just accelerating as a nation and a world into godlessness. But I'm thankful for even when I was growing up in a public school context, it was very different. And... My first point here about history, and I'm saying this as one who's not in the public school system any longer, although my junior year I took U.S. history and had a great teacher and really taught well and understood history, but it is said that accurate U.S. history is no longer taught in the public schools. That's probably a fair assessment, isn't it? That accurate U.S. history is no longer taught in the public schools. You know, the old saying, those who do not learn from history are destined to repeat it. And uh, it's important to know history. Now, I know I'm saying that as a brother who is a history professor, both for a college and for the seminary of the Free Church. I was a history minor. I love history. Well, something I didn't tell you at the outset this morning is I was almost going to get a master's in church history. And I wish I had. I was talked out of it by uh, a friend, a relative, but I wish I would have gotten it, especially with the ongoing training I've gotten since then. Uh, 
educationally. But nonetheless, uh, history is so important. So I love history. I love church history in particular, but American history is important. So I'm, I'm afraid that there's a great disservice being done to young people across the board today. And uh, for those who are in Christian schools or in home schools, they're, they're blessed to have such uh, opportunities for good education. So I think it's a fair statement, isn't it, that accurate history, American history, is no longer taught in the public schools. So even in this short time that we have, I hope to change that and share some things that are very important. We're talking about free indeed. And what I also didn't mention is that my older brother, not only is a professor, he's written a few books. And one of the books that he wrote is called, interesting title, Free Indeed. So I didn't steal the title from him, but it's Free Indeed. The subtitle is, uh, I think, A Brief History of the Black Church in America. So uh, my brother is certainly a church historian in the, what he teaches the students at the Geneva Reform, but also uh, teaches, um, teaches Civil War and other courses that... Uh, reflect from uh, the perspective of American church history. So we're going to talk about freedom and the situation of our country and its founding, and then most importantly, the freedom that is ours in Christ. What I'd like to do is to read to you from a document that was read in Congress on July 4th, 1776. It's called the Declaration of Independence. Now, I'm not going to read all of it, but a couple of important portions as this aligns with my sermon and help us to understand some very great truths, some things maybe you didn't know. It says, when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to separation. All right, so this is during the period of time with this Declaration of Independence when we were going to fight a war of independence. Uh, it was led by General Washington. I am in western Pennsylvania. The first church that I ever had association with as an assistant pastor for seven and a half years where the church is, there's a creek. It's called Chartiers. Now, it's actually French. It would be Chartier, but Chartiers being, you know, we Americans. And like in southern Indiana, have you ever been to Versailles, Indiana? I went to camp in Versailles. Now, it's Versailles. I know if you're French, but when in America, we do as the Americans do. So on Chartiers Creek paddled George Washington back in the day when he was serving, uh, actually before the Revolutionary War, the French and Indian War period. And you may have studied that in, in your history, but uh, it's part of our history. And you also may know that where I live uh, in western Pennsylvania is the forming of the Ohio River, which is not too far from here. The Monongahela and the Allegheny converge there next to a point and a stadium or two, and there comes the Ohio River. And George Washington was in that area. There's a lot of good Washington history. Just south of Pittsburgh is little Washington, Pennsylvania. And there's also Washington County, so the impact of George Washington. All right, so you know what I'm talking about here and uh, the War of Independence. I continue. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, 
and the pursuit of happiness. Those are words you've probably heard. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it. Now, one thing I didn't say, if I may pause here, this was written by Thomas Jefferson. And I figured most of you knew that, but just in case, uh, Thomas Jefferson is the author of these words. I continue. And to institute a new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence, indeed, will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes, and accordingly all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. I read this thinking in light of today, and maybe we should do that, especially as Americans. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. And I have highlighted this section. The history of the present King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having a direct object, the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. Now, after that statement, there's a list of reasons why they are going to separate from England. And, uh, you know, it's interesting as I read these things, I'll read it in context of living today, of how many of these things are so similar to our own current government and the way they seek to rule and tyrannize the people. But nonetheless, uh, this is one of the important things I want us to understand concerning this declaration. I'm going to continue. There's one last paragraph I'm going to read, and uh, in doing so, uh, a couple of important truths, especially as believers. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America in general Congress assembled appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do in the, the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, and that as free and independent states they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, I love those words, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. And below that are all the gentlemen who signed this Declaration of Independence. 
You may remember one man in particular, the first man put his very, very large, so King George III of England wouldn't have any trouble seeing it. His name was John Hancock. So when you hear about people writing their John Hancock, that's where it came from. So um, we get an idea then of the context of our Declaration of Independence. Now it's interesting some things about uh, this that I'm going to make, some points about some of the ones who signed, actually one in particular, is that uh, this was a different time, I realize. And we, and when we read this, the context is the separation from England and those who are willing to fight for that freedom, to fight for that separation in the War of Independence or called the Revolutionary War. In doing so, most of the people that were signing this had some sort of Christian affiliation, various denominations. What you may not know, and actually I didn't know, is that of these ones who signed, 12 of them were Presbyterians. This is why it's important for our context in a free Presbyterian church. 12 of them were Presbyterians. Of all the men who signed this, only one was a minister. And guess what? He was a Presbyterian minister as well. So of all the ones who signed our declaration, only one was a minister and he was Presbyterian. His name was John Witherspoon. John Witherspoon. And uh, if you're at all one who understands our culture, he has a descendant who is an actress, Reese Witherspoon. Maybe a name you've heard. Actually a descendant of, of John Witherspoon. Probably doesn't have his faith, most likely, don't know much about her, but nonetheless, that is the case. 56 signers total, 56 signers, and 12 of them were Presbyterian. I'm not a math guy, but 21.4% of the signers of the Declaration of Independence were Presbyterian. How's that for our heritage? It is said, and I found a couple of quotations that cite this, that King George III called the American Revolution something that you may not have heard. He called it the Presbyterian Rebellion. How about that? the Presbyterian Rebellion. And obviously, the theological leader, as far as minister, was a Presbyterian, John Witherspoon. Now, I want to set something straight. At least I hope so, or the understanding straight. Um, one of my esteemed professors, actually, when he passed away a year or so ago, he was, uh, as far as I know, a member. He certainly attended regularly, as his family did, was a member of the Free Church in Greenville, Dr. Edward Panosian. And, of course, when you go to college, it is said that you forget 90% of what you learn. So you may think, well, why do I spend all that money to forget 90% of what you learn? But you do. You just don't remember. But I remember a few things here and there of things that just stuck in my mind. And I remember something that Dr. Panosian pointed out in a lecture that I've never forgotten. He said that the men at this period of 1776 have been called our founding fathers. But actually, they were not our founding fathers. They were our constitutional fathers. He said, if you want to go to this country, this new world as it was back then, and find our founding fathers, they came over on a ship from England called the Mayflower. And they were English separatists called pilgrims. And these pilgrims came for two main reasons, to worship the Lord freely and to evangelize the Indians. So a very different history than you hear about today, but those were our founding fathers. 
Those are the ones who came originally for purposes. And I was just talking to someone actually uh, at, at the workplace a couple days ago. He said, and he knew I knew, but he said, Chris, do you know the schools that are up in the Ivy League region were all formed as Christian places? Harvard was a Christian man and their charter, if you read it, and think of what it is now. Think how sad it is. You know, one of the reasons I went to a Christian college is because a cousin from Newcastle graduated in 1971, and I think things were probably a little bit better in 51 years ago. Well, I'm sure they were to some extent, but he went from his high school to Indiana University in Bloomington and watched people that were somewhat good kids, moral kids, go absolutely off the deep end, go hog wild. He found out professors and the preferred things they were doing. Vietnam was raging, the protests. He said it was insanity. And so I came back and asked an assistant pastor in Newcastle, Indiana, is there a place that I could go for speech and drama and in a Christian college context? He said, well, uh, you know, there are some places. Now, there's, he mentioned a few, there's one. I've never been there. It's called, it's, called, it's called Bob Jones University. And, you know, if you'd like to, to go there, I think you could get what you want. Well, lo and behold, now, 50 years later, because he transferred in 72, got his doctorate in education, was in several of their films, and teaches uh, speech and dramatic production. And also, if you've had any connection there, it's like Pastor Bannister, who's in a lot of their Shakespearean plays. So just to God's providence, he went to a secular school, and he found out what it was really like. Now, I don't want to speak with forked tongue, okay, as I say these things today. I really am not a fan of public or secular education. I think I can say that. Uh, we're not politically correct here. And I'm not uh, really much on the way the public school system is or the college system. Now, in saying that, I have a son who is a junior at one of the Penn State branch campuses. He lives in our home, has his connection with his family, takes classes, plays basketball for them, comes back. So I don't want to seem like a hypocrite. But I'm glad he has the Christian family and the Christian underpinnings because I know that for the most part of what these secular schools were like. Just last week, I had to go to Morgantown, West Virginia. Now, we have colleges and universities in Pittsburgh, but I went to Morgantown because I had to go down to uh, see someone that was down there, so I did. And I drove back through the campus of West Virginia University. And West Virginia used to be a part of a different conference. Now they're a part of the this doesn't make sense, the Big 12, those Western schools. That, you know, you've got West Virginia all the way close to Pittsburgh. But uh, I passed by the frat houses. The frat houses, there was no grass. Frat house after frat house didn't need grass because they were covered in beer cans. I kid you not. All right? So we kind of know what's going on in the frat house. And the other things that we don't want to talk about, Corinthianize this morning, all right? That's what's happening, as one of my friends used to call it, Devil State University, you know? And I used to liken it, especially when I was in youth ministries, that here we are, we have our covenant children. Of course, I wasn't saying that back then. It was in the Baptist context. But our covenant children, our Christian kids, our little lambs, and here are all these wolves that we just, okay, here you go. We'll let you devour them. So I don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't want to speak with forked tongue because my son goes to Penn State University, but he knows. We have discussions. And I do know he has a history love as well. 
and he makes that known. And when he took his midterm for his history class, he got a perfect score. It's like, ah, this is great. He must have that. If there is a genetic thing for history, I think it, it exists with our family. Okay, enough of that rant about that. But nonetheless, yeah, I think you see where I'm coming from when it comes to these issues. Well, our founding fathers and our constitutional fathers, you see from the words read here, the supreme judge of the world, because of the protection of divine providence, a very different, very different situation. And these Presbyterian men here were ones who were willing to stand for truth and willing to die for the freedom of their country. And John Witherspoon was one of them. But one of the key words that I want to emphasize here this morning from, or this afternoon from our Declaration of Independence are actually three phrases that we are to be able to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And of course, what I want to focus on is liberty. Liberty, focusing upon the liberty that we have as Americans. So if you go back now to our text, this is where, again, the integration of history, church history, and now the scriptures will help us understand that one key word. I'd like to read verses 17 and 18 and talk about the subjects of regeneration and sanctification. It says, Now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the spirit of the Lord. This morning we talked about from our context of verses 14, 15, and 16, that direction from bondage to freedom. And when we talk about the word liberty, the best one word definition for the word liberty is freedom. Freedom. Now, again, with being here in America, and some that I found out have dual citizenship, I'm correct, from the country above us, the North Canada, uh, as Americans, we understand... Uh, I hope these truths that we're trying to get across here this about liberty and freedom. Freedom is a word that we use even today. It's a word that is uh, talked about. We talk about our freedoms or how we're losing our freedoms. We want to be free. Well, liberty, when you say liberty, you're basically saying freedom. They are one and the same. And we are told here in verse 17, after we talked about the condition of the mind being blinded, verse 14, the condition of our heart being veiled, the conversion of our soul, the turning, the repentance, that change that comes about. Now the regeneration by the Spirit. So let's back up a little bit. Why is regeneration by the Spirit absolutely necessary? Well, I want to go back in our minds to John chapter 3. We talked about this morning a bit about Christ and his interaction with the religious leaders, the Pharisees in particular, and their hatred of who Christ was. You know, Christ just told them point blank, you're of your father, the devil, and those are the works you're going to do. And the reason that you want to kill me is because you're of your father, the devil. And they were. They were religious, but lost. And religion is like that. As I said this morning, religion says do, 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 do. When we as Bible Christians say it's done, Christ has finished it. But as he talked to Nicodemus, a great teacher, a man who had lots of knowledge, Christ said in John 3, 3, except a man be born again, he cannot see 
the kingdom of God, let alone enter into it. The absolute necessity of regeneration. Now, why do we say that? Well, if we go to Ephesians, one of my favorite books, in chapter 2, what is the spiritual condition? This is sort of a review. I think it's what the Puritans used to do in the afternoon, uh, you know, catechizing and reviewing the sermon. What is it? Well, the issue, Ephesians 2, we are dead in trespasses and sins. I remember in my journey of grace, and listen, folks, till we die, it's a journey of grace. All right, we are on that journey. But I remember a man that preached and he poured his heart out. And one of our young people, it was the young people, was being said, How could that guy sit there? How could he just sit there? When that was being said, how could he just. Here's how he can just sit there he's dead and trespasses and sins. Uh, do you have cemeteries in Indianapolis still? All right, go to the cemetery this afternoon when you leave here and preach. Pour your heart out in the cemetery and see how many people come out. Now, I don't think if I understand the nature of uh, cemeteries, anybody's going to come out because they're dead. But we have a hard time. I had a hard time. A lot of people have a hard time understanding that when it comes to the spiritual condition of unsaved people, that they are dead and trespasses and sins. So Christ told Nicodemus, he said, wait a minute, you're the ruler of the Jews and you don't understand this? Well, how can a man be born again? You know, you, you know the story. You know the account. But that's where they are. So the absolute necessity of regeneration. Now, also in that same chapter of Ephesians chapter 2, this was a great point of impact in my life. Let's, re, let's think of a verse. Actually, two verses. For by grace are you saved through faith. Here's how the text reads. And that, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. How are we under, to understand that? Kind of like this morning when we talked about it. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. What is not of yourself? What is the gift of God? It's faith. Because dead men don't have faith. But God gives us regeneration by the Spirit. The regenerating power. And let me remind you of this. Because as we as Americans are hopefully pursuing life liberty and happiness as christians we do the same once we are made new in christ but remember these words i love the gospel of john now i mentioned the i am statement that christ made think of the multiple i am statements he made about himself but john 663 says this christ speaking john 663 it is the spirit and that is the holy spirit who gives life I was born in Henry County. Did I have anything to do with it? I was born. God created me in my mother's womb, and I was born. That's how it worked. That's how it works. I was here when this couple were expecting a child in, in October, and now today I got to see that little one, Corbin, 10 months old. That miracle. And so spiritually, a miracle has to take place, doesn't it? Do we understand that? Dr. Mike Barrett, I'm also going to mention, was a friend of mine, a professor of mine. He used to say it to his class, are you with me? Are you with me? I love it when you're with me. Are you with me this afternoon? Are you with me? The necessity of regeneration because we are dead. I didn't always understand that. Now I'm going to go back to Ephesians because I don't think I finished, but I started. It was on my rabbit trails that I'm going on. Kind of almost pastoral senior moments. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Faith is the gift of God. 
Because God comes to us when we hear the gospel in the power of the spirit. And he opens those eyes. He opens that heart. He opens the ears. He opens the mind. He points us to that, showing us that Christ is the way. I'm not going to talk about the subject of conviction, but that's a part of it as well. Let me share with you something. Again, this is something the Lord brings to mind. I'm doing a lot of history integrated. Are you familiar with the name John Bunyan? I was sharing with our, my lunch colleagues today about my mentor in the Reformed faith, pastor of the church founded by John Bunyan. So I have somewhere on an old videotape a Bunyan walk that he is lecturing. He was an open-air preacher, so you can imagine his voice. As we were walking through Pilgrim's Progress, those places, we actually went there. Well, Bunyan lived in Bedfordshire, all right, Bedford, England, the county of Bedfordshire. And the parish church where he was baptized was the Church of Elstow, the established church, the Anglican church, the here in the States, the Episcopal Church. You know what I'm talking about, okay? And it's interesting because the bell tower was separate from the actual church. So you had a, the building, the bell tower. And John Bunyan was the ringer of the bell, you know, to call people into worship time. And when he was under great conviction of sin, before his conversion, he would not go inside and ring the bell because in a nearby parish, a man who was the bell ringer, the bell broke loose, came crashing down and killed the bell ringer. And John Bunyan said, because of his conviction of sin, I am such a sinner, I am such an ungodly man that if I were to walk into that bell tower and the parish church of Elstow and ring that bell, surely God Almighty would make it come and crash down and kill me because I'm such a sinner. He was under that kind of conviction. He, said, he saw who he was. And that's what the Spirit does. The Spirit shows us who we are, which is nothing. And then he shows us the glory and greatness of Christ, who is everything. So John Bunyan said, I'm such a sinner. He rang the bell from outside. God would surely kill me. He was a blasphemer. He was a blasphemer of blasphemers, he said, if you've ever read, grace abounding to the chief of sinners. Paul said of sinners, of whom I am chief, I'm the chief of sinner in this room. I will confess to you. But I am a sinner saved by grace. And my testimony is that of the Apostle Paul from 1 Corinthians. By the grace of God, I am what I am. A couple weeks ago, I was standing on a corner in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Not a lot different than Indianapolis as far as cities go. And I sometimes, and again, I didn't get into my whole history of what I do and this and that, but I'm downtown Pittsburgh. I have to ride a bus out to my house, or at least close to my house. My family is going to pick me up. So I'm at a different bus stop because I have a different bus I have to take. And right across the way was some sort of faith-based help place for homeless people and drug addicts. And I'm on the corner here, and I'm watching person after person get in line to get a meal and a cup of coffee. And I'm glad that these homeless people are able to get a meal and a cup of coffee. But I was waxing eloquent in my mind there, and nobody knew it. I was like, oh, these people, these drug addicts, these homeless people. And then I stopped and said, wait a minute, Chris, wait a minute. It's only by God's grace that you're not standing in that line. It's only by God's grace that we're sitting here this, this afternoon. It was asked of John Calvin one time about a drunk in the gutter. What do you think about that man, Mr. Calvin? 
He came back with a Latin phrase, Imago Dei, the image of God, the image of God. But for the grace of God, but for the grace of God, but for the grace of God. Folks, that's the, that's the difference. What makes you to differ? Romans 9. It is by grace. Don't you love grace? You know, I'd write a book, but it's already been written. Charles Spurgeon, all of grace. It's all of grace. Have I gotten that point? Are you with me? Is it okay to say that in the afternoon service? We're less formal. Are you with me? By the grace of God, we are what we are. Secondly, in our text here, now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. You know, I'm 55 years old. I was born in 1967. And through the 60s and into the 70s, there was a lot of movements out there talking about freedom, freedom. And, you know, they were having concerts and they were having these kinds of things and that kind of things. And freedom, freedom. All right. But folks, unless we are in Christ, as the scripture says, we are bound. We are slaves. The only place where there's liberty, the only place where there's true freedom is in Christ. And where the spirit of the Lord has come and where the spirit has ministered, there is freedom. There is liberty. The only free people in America are Christians. Now, we supposedly live, and again, I use this term loosely, in a free country, and we know what that means. But the only freedom that really is free is freedom in Christ. I don't know if they, you still publish the Indianapolis Star, but if you do, and I used to put it on the counter of the donut shop where I grew up working, there's a little verse there. From 2 Corinthians 3.17, now where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. The Lord is the Spirit. The Lord is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, that's where liberty actually is. So do you kind of see this parallel? Life, liberty, pursuit of happiness in Christ. We have life by the Spirit. In Christ, we have liberty. We are only free in Christ. We are free indeed. Remember that word this morning that Christ gave to us? Free indeed. What about happy? Well, the Beatitudes literally are talking about happy. You know, blessed are those people. Happy are those people. Let me give you a quote from Scripture that uses that word. Psalm 144, 15. Happy the people whose God is the Lord. Happy the people whose God is the Lord. So as Christians, we can truly understand this document of which I have a copy of when it comes to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We as believers have that real opportunity to pursue life and liberty and happiness. Well, finally this morning, secondly on today's outline, after the regeneration by the Spirit, let's talk about sanctification by the Spirit. Verse 18. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. What is happening here? We are being changed. We are literally being transformed. Now think about that. All right, I've referred to my age because I don't know ladies don't tell their age, but, but unless they get, I think, above 85, they'll usually tell their age, right? That's okay, but otherwise ladies don't tell their age. But men, it's not. So I'm 55, and uh, I've already proven today that at age 55, sometimes I have senior moments. I start to say something, and it's like, where was I going with that, you know? 
and certain parts of the body hurt a little bit worse. And, and you know, the older you get, the stronger you get, the better you feel. I mean, it's not that way, folks. The older you get, the harder it gets. Even as the psalmist talks about, we get 70 years. And, even, and after that, how difficult it is. Well, it can be difficult before 70, right? There's things that we can have as far as these pains and these aches. So it's, it doesn't get any easier. But the Bible addresses that. That as we are ones who are getting weaker physically, we can be strengthened spiritually. We can be strength. We can be growing stronger as we physically are growing weaker. Growing weaker physically, growing stronger spiritually. And that's what this passage is saying. That we are being changed. We are being transformed into the same image. Of course, the image for us is the image of Christ. We are Christians. We are his. And so we are being changed. Sanctification. Sometimes called progressive sanctification. Ones who were set apart in Christ and ones who are growing in grace and knowledge. I love that passage in Peter. It says, grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Going back to that same professor, Dr. Mike Barrett. I remember him saying a word to us. Again, these are those things that just stick in your mind after you forget 90% of everything else. He said, this is, this is like a neon light flashing. I mean, this is like, you can't miss this, of how clear it is. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. For this is the will of God. Should we, should we take note? Here it is. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification. That's God's will. And so what God wills, will he accomplish? Yes, he will. God is going to be working in us. And so as we see by the spirit, we are being changed. We are being transformed. And though it's as if we, like the veil this morning and the covering of Moses face, though it's like we're seeing these things, you know, in a smoke screen, in a fog. There's going to come a time very soon. And for some of us sooner than others, that if we are in Christ, we will behold his glory face to face. And that will be an eternal reality. Now, these, I hope, are exciting truths that we see from God's word. That change that is going about now, weakening physically, strengthening spiritually, God's spirit at work in us, the same image from glory to glory by God's spirit. We are being sanctified. Now, I want to throw in one more big word. I talked about regeneration and sanctification. Let's talk about one more word. It's kind of referred to here, glorification. Glorification. How do we become glorified? We have to die. Because this process of sanctification will be perfected at death, sometimes called ultimate sanctification. Sometimes theologians say that, but glorified, being glorified. So we're talking about being able to live forever perfectly. No, no tears, no sin, no dying, no pain, none of those things. We are perfected. We are glorified. And we can't even imagine what that's like. You know, one of the uh, old hymn writers, John Newton, said, sin is mixed with all I do. Another theologian, I think, might have been George Whitfield. Even my repentance needs repenting of. It shows us where we are. 
But God's grace sustains us. It undergirds us. And as we are being changed, we are saved yet sinning. I think as Luther said, quoting a lot of these people, saved yet sinning. Yet we are in Christ and there will be that day what will be glory for us. Be glorious for us when we see Christ as he is. And we will be like him, Paul said. We will be like him because we will see him as he is. These are wonderful truths that we see from the beginnings of bondage and the absolute necessity of God's work of grace to us to the point when, yes, we're made free, we're saved, we're growing in grace. And then for us, it's just, it's just the beginning once we die for that eternal time of fellowship with our Lord. Have you ever gotten Charlie horses in your brain by certain theological concepts like forever? I remember lying on the yard in Pickett Avenue where I grew up underneath a bush, and I thought, I'm going to live forever. I thought, I just, I just, what, I, can't, I can't handle this. I'm going to live forever. But the truth is, we are going to live forever, aren't we? Everyone's going to live forever of one of two places, but I'm going to live forever. It's hard to get my, my mind around that, but it's true. God's word declares it. And obviously as a minister, I've been with those who are dying, those who are in the faith, ready to see the Lord. Just give you a couple of quick things to encourage you, because I've sought to be devotional and theological and all that here in a short time. I was sharing again at lunchtime. Sounds like I was at lunchtime for about three hours, doesn't it? Of all the things I talked about at lunchtime, I, was, I had illustrated, but they good illustrations to bring this home. Talking about my family in this area and you know, where I grew up and uh, talk about my mom and dad and siblings, whatnot. Well, um, because of my Hoosier connection, my, my mother and dad you know, moved here back in the 50s. And uh, my dad died very quickly. It was just a moment he was taken because of a massive heart attack. But then my mom had Alzheimer's, so it was a, a slow, slow death. And uh, so my mom, though she had Alzheimer's, she actually had a two-week battle with pneumonia. That's what took her. And my younger brother was the only one that could be here. He, I, I won't go into all the dynamics, but I can tell you after the service if we're talking afterwards. But nonetheless, my younger brother was with my mom. Now, my mom didn't know any of us. She had Alzheimer's. She, she didn't know her children. You know, she, she, uh, she was a twin. She pretty much knew her name. But if, like my brother would call her mom, she wouldn't respond to that anymore. He had to call her by her first name because she, she knew that, but he called her mom. It was meaningless. So he was there at her bedside in August 2009. So that's 13 years ago. And she was basically like in a coma because she had pneumonia and her eyes were closed. But he said he was there in the moment when she took her last breath. And my mom was 5'1". She was, she was a scrapper, but she was 5'1", and she had beautiful brown eyes. He said those eyes that were closed opened as wide as you could believe, and a smile came on her face, and she went to sleep. Now, I know a text in Scripture, and I don't know what happen on the other side. But I do know that when Lazarus died, Christ says that he was carried by angels into Abraham's bosom. Do you remember that? This is the contrast between the rich man and Lazarus. 
Do you think the angels were a coming for to carry her home, as the old spiritual says? So that weak little five one hundred pound body is now more alive than she's ever been and will be forever. Is this starting to make sense of the glory that will not fade away? As we are weakened in our physical bodies, there's a glory that we can't imagine. And Christ wants us to be there, John 17, to behold his glory. Oh, I trust that it will be precious to me. I know how cold my heart is so often, how weak I am in faith. But thankfully, it doesn't depend upon us, does it? I'm kept by his grace. Oh, hallelujah, what a Savior. Let's pray and then we'll close with a song. Father, we thank you so much for your mercy and grace and love to us. Lord, help us to truly be in awe and to say, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Lord, we are in awe that you would save us. We know that Christ loved us and gave himself for us. But he desires that we be where he is to behold his glory. And we thank you for it. Father, we thank you for the privilege of reading your word. It's inspired. It's forever settled in heaven. It cannot be broken. Your word is truth. And Father, we are privileged. We are blessed. We realize where we could be if it were not for grace. Or we don't know where we might be were it not for grace. But we thank you that though we are undeserving completely, that you would love us and save us. Father, help me and to help us take these wonderful truths that Paul has expounded to our hearts and realize, Father, that truly the best is yet to come for eternity in heaven with our Savior. Oh, Lord, we certainly can't grasp that glory that is ahead for us. And so, Lord, we thank you for this time of worship. We thank you for these dear folks here at the Indianapolis Church. We ask that you would take your word and apply it to our hearts now by your spirit. And truly, again, help us to grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose precious name we pray. Amen.